So do you like the good news first or the bad news? You're a bad news first kind of person. Uh, it it, it kind of can go both ways, right? It really depends on the news you're getting. Well, uh, a doctor was telling his patient, you know, I have some good news and I have some bad news. The patient says, well, what's the good news? Uh, the good news is that the test showed that uh, you have 24 hours to live. <laughs> the patient says, well, that's good news. What's the bad news? I forgot to call you yesterday. <laughs> Sometimes the good news just ain't that good, right? And it makes the bad news even worse. Today, we're going to talk a lot about some good news, but a lot more about some bad news. In fact, the whole letter of Jude is full of both good news and bad news. It begins, though, and it ends with good news. And the good news that the letter of Jude begins and ends with helps us understand and deal with the bad news in the middle. It actually gives us a frame of reference and hope even and purpose for the bad news that we're actually going to dig into today. Uh, the whole letter of Jude is bookended by grace. It's bookended by God's grace. Look at the way the letter of Jude begins. If you're there already, that's great. But if you're not, the letter of Jude is the second to last letter or book in the Bible, right before Revelation. And you'll, it's only one chapter, so you might miss it. So look for it. It's the second to last letter in the Bible. This letter begins with good news. Uh, the good news of God's rescuing grace. He says in verse 2, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. What wonderful news to call Christians, to call the church beloved in, by God, kept, secure by Jesus Christ, the called ones. And that mercy and peace and love are multiplying in your life. That's such good news, isn't it? Well, look at the way it ends. That's one bookend. The other bookend is verse 24 to 25. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Book ended by grace. We are kept by Jesus Christ and we're kept for Jesus Christ. It is God who keeps our feet from stumbling and even from ultimately falling away from Himself. He is the one who keeps us. Isn't that good? That is good news. And this is how Jude begins and ends, bookended by grace. But, as we just read, in between these bookends of grace is some bad news. Some really doom and gloomy news. Some very politically incorrect and maybe even bizarre to us news and words and pictures and stories and going ons. As we dig into this middle section of Jude's letter, which is full of warnings, 
we need to remember that it is bookended by God's grace. We need to not lose sight of the good news when we're getting into some of this bad news. Lots of four-letter words this morning, like hell and judgment and destruction and apostasy and falling away, words like that. They're heavy. And that's why we need to remember the good news of the Gospel. Because without that, it's too heavy for us to bear. Jude's letter takes us to this middle section that reminds us that there are past examples of God's judgment that are there for us to alert us today of present danger. He brings us and and almost drags us into this first century world and even thousands of years of redemptive history. He calls us to remember that the Old Testament isn't just full of stories or fables. It's God's story. It's Israel's story. It is the church's story. It is our story. And these are meant for our instruction and our example. They are Holy Spirit-given lessons and examples designed to teach us what faith looks like. What the life of faith looks like. Where do you go? You go to the Old Testament. All of Scripture teaches us what the life of faith looks like. And we're going to follow Jude into that, uh, into the Old Testament today. We're going to see how these past examples of God's judgment actually remind us of the present danger we're all facing. But in the midst of it all, there is grace. God's rescuing grace. As we dig into this middle section of Jude, I want you to pray with me. We need to ask God's help to understand and believe this this morning. Father, we pray and we thank You in advance that You're going to answer this prayer to help us believe Your Word today. Help us understand it. There's things here that we're going to read and study uh, that we might not fully understand by the end of the morning or even at the end of our lives. And that's okay. I pray that Your Spirit would be our teacher to teach us what You really want us to know and what You've designed for us to know. Uh, We pray that You would make us more like Jesus because of the time we've sat in glad, joyful, expectant submission to Your Word. We know that You can do this. You've promised. So we wait. Help us to be restlessly working uh, and listening as we study Your Word today. Help us to be patiently waiting, though, for Your Spirit to change our hearts. Meet us where we're at today and, and In all of our temptations and in all of our trials, give us hope, we pray, and make us more like Jesus. In his great name we pray, amen. So there are going to be some things that we might not fully understand by the time we're done together this morning, reading and praying and and preaching and listening to God's word. So I want to make sure you get the big idea right now so that uh, in case I lose you at some point, you got the big idea. The big idea of Jude's letter here in verses 5 to 10 is that God has given us examples of past judgment to alert us of present danger. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger, right? Past examples of judgment for alerting us to present danger in the church. Not just out there, but 
in here and maybe even in here. In verses 5 to 7, we see three examples of God's past divine judgment from redemptive history past. And these examples alert us to the present dangers that Jude was facing as false teachers were infiltrating, intruding in the church, trying to smuggle in another gospel. But it wasn't the true gospel. It had perverted God's grace into sensuality and had denied even the lordship of Jesus. So Jude says in verse 4, we saw this last week, he says that these false teachers, their condemnation was designated a long time ago. What does that mean? Well, I think what he means, I believe what he means is that the way that we know that these false teachers will be judged, that God will take care of the danger that threatens the gospel, is because they fit into the scriptural pattern of what false teachers look like. What do false teachers look like? How do we know? Where do we go to find out? Well, certainly in Jude, but Jude takes us to the Old Testament. He takes us into God's redemptive history. And so in there, we're going to see that Jude brings to our mind, he calls us to remember Israel's unbelief. He calls us to remember the angels' rebellion against God. And he calls to mind Sodom and Gomorrah's immorality and their destruction. So happy Sunday. Happy Sunday. I know. Why on earth are we in Jude? <laughs> right? Can't we talk about something happier than this? Here's why. Because the gospel is always being threatened. We're either contending for the gospel or we're losing the gospel. And God has given us two, especially two letters to help us remember this. Galatians warns us that false teachers will come and try to pervert the gospel into legalism. Jesus plus something else. Your works. Your faithfulness, usually. Galatians warns us against veering away from the gospel into legalism. Jude warns us from veering off from the gospel into license. A license to sin. Jesus is okay, but it's okay that you sin. It, it, God's forgiven you. Grace, grace, people. It's grace. Don't work yourself up so much about it. Jude is there. He's saying, beware, beware of presuming on God's grace that only forgives but doesn't transform your life. And so these three examples from Israel, angels, and Sodom and Gomorrah are going to help us understand the danger so let's look. Verse 5. The first example of past judgment is found in verse 5. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Wow. This takes us back to the Exodus, doesn't it? Can you imagine what that would have been like? The ten plagues. God rescuing his people out of slavery in Egypt, God defeating the ancient superpower of the day that had enslaved his people, Israel. And they saw the Red Sea part. They saw all the miracles. God fed them in the wilderness miraculously. But the same people that experienced that salvation rescue out of Egypt ended up being destroyed, 
Jude says that Jesus, the Lord, pre-existent, pre-incarnate Jesus, God, the Son, actually destroyed these people that He had once rescued. Why? Because of their unbelief. They rejected God. This generation, or at least most of this generation, rejected God and His power, His promises, even His presence with them. For what? Jude has in mind here what happened in the situation that happened in Numbers 14. If you want to just jot that down and look it up. Numbers 14 tells us of when God pronounced this judgment on Israel. Remember the 12 spies? You remember them? They were sent in to spot out the land that God had promised that He would give to Israel. And when they came back, their report, 10 out of the 12 said, no way, we can't do it. I I don't care what God says. Ain't happening. And Israel sided with the 10 instead of the two faithful spies who said, with God's strength, according to His power and His promises, we can. Israel sided in unbelief with the unbelieving spies. They believed the spies on their word over God's word. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden believed that Satan had a better word than God. Israel as a nation remained in unbelief. They apostatized. Is that a word you know? Apostasy, apostatize, apostate? Big word. That just means they had religious experience but had never experienced God's saving grace. It's not that they lost their salvation. They did not lose their relationship with God. They never had one. It looked like they did, but they didn't. Church, beware unbelief. Beware the unbelief that Israel found themselves in. Beware just having religious experience it's not enough it wasn't enough for them to experience god's exodus from egypt it wasn't enough to witness these miracles it's not enough to be baptized it's not enough to raise a hand to say yes i want to follow jesus or walk down an aisle or be a church member those things are good but apart from faith they are worthless They're just religious actions. Faith is what is necessary. Faith in the person and power and promises of God that is evident in trust and obedience. Israel warns us to not presume upon religious experience and not to presume upon God's grace, but to be in check, to to be listening to God's Spirit to see if we have faith. So God did not allow that generation into the promised land, did He? He destroyed them. He judged them by letting them wander for 40 years. That whole generation died in the desert. As a lesson to teach the next generation, trust God, trust His promises. There is life to be found in God's promises. But if you trust another Gospel, another Word... There is death. There is death to be found in a false gospel. And Israel sadly believed a false gospel. 
That's warning one. Another example, another warning of past judgment is this rebellion of angels, that angels would rebel against God. Look at verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own authority but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the past ju- until the judgment of the great day. Think about this. God not only judged His people on earth, Israel, He judged His angels in heaven. Angels. Heavenly warriors. Armies and armies of angels who witnessed and worshipped God in His infinite glory that we can't even fathom. I mean, we, we think of God as our friend. And because of His mercy in Jesus, He is. He's our Father. But without mercy, you should be terrified of God. Without God's mercy, you should... Be scared of God. Seriously. Raiders of the lost ark opening the ark. Scared, right? You thinking with me? And that's not even enough. Because God is holy, holy, holy. We love to think that God is love. And He is. But He is holy love. And He only forgives. And He only befriends us. He only gives us His mercy in a just way through faith and reliance on Jesus. These angels rebelled against God who they saw in all His glory. It says that they did not stay in their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling. What does this mean? I don't know. (laughs) Okay, This is one of those parts of Scripture where we're on thin thin ice because scripture just doesn't speak about it much i like to quote deuteronomy 29 29 you know that one the secret things belong to god (laughs) i don't know when did this happen when did this mutiny rebellion civil war in heaven happen two options two options and you know what Either one helps us get to the point that Jude's getting at. So even if we can't figure it out right now, we know what Jude's driving home at. So you want to know the two options? Sure you do. Okay, so first is that Jude is just talking generally of when Satan incited rebellion in heaven. Revelation chapter 12 alludes to this, where a third of the angels sided with Satan in rebellion to God. But even there, it's a little bit vague of when that happened. They tried to dethrone God. Satan tried to take God's job. Silly, silly, silly. But sinister, huh? So these fallen angels perhaps fell and left their rightful place of worship and submission to God by rebelling with Satan. That's option one. Uh, Option two is that maybe Jude is referring here to a Jewish tradition that was very popular during his day, and probably some of you have heard, maybe even hold to, uh, that he's referring that uh, these fallen angels go back to Genesis chapter 6, 
where there was a rebellion there too. The, the sons of God desired and went after the daughters of men. And the thought was in Jewish tradition of his day that those sons of God were fallen angels who somehow came to earth and were messing around with women. That was the most popular view in the first century. And Scripture is silent about if that ever happened. But you know what we do know? We know that they left their rightful place of submission to God and worship of God. They said in their hearts, apparently, I deserve something better than this. I deserve what I want more than what God has given me. And so, God judged them. He has placed them in gloomy chains and darkness until the final judgment. Israel's destruction in the wilderness and here uh, the angels kept in, being kept in chains until the final judgment are precursors, warnings of the final judgment day that is coming when Jesus comes back. But think about this, okay, church? Think about this. Have you ever heard those words ringing in your head? God, I do not deserve this. God, I deserve better than this. Have you ever thought that? Really? Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure all of us have. Scary, isn't it? You sound, okay, I sound too like these rebellious angels. God, I know better. God, I deserve better. God, I'm going to take what you have not given me. How did that work for them? How did it work for Israel? They suffered their own destruction. They brought destruction upon others. These warnings, I think we're beginning to see, aren't just about the false teachers out there, but maybe even the inclination in our hearts that false teachers actually try to take advantage of. The false teaching that our hearts try to deceive our hearts away from believing God's promises. So we see that in the example of, of Israel's unbelief, the angels' rebellion, but also Sodom and Gomorrah's immorality. This is the third and last example that Jude brings here. And it's infamous, isn't it? Even in our culture today, Sodom and Gomorrah still has this ring of doom and gloom, brimstone and fire, right? right? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. You know, that type of picture of God. And you know, that's all Christians are about. Judgment and hell. We're not, not about that. Just as a fireman wouldn't walk around a burning bin, building and say, hmm, I wonder what I'm going to watch on TV tonight. No. Warnings are good. Warnings are necessary. But remember the good news. We will come back to the good news, I promise you. But Sodom and Gomorrah, bad news. Look at verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursue unnatural desire, they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Whoa. This takes us back to Genesis 18 and 19. 
And there, if you remember, or if you learn today, God spoke to his servant Abraham and said, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities are wicked. Not wicked good, wicked bad. And their crimes, not just sexual immorality, okay, but injustice, abusing the poor, taking advantage of their wealth at the expense of others, injustice and immorality. Uh, that usually goes hand in hand with cities and populations, great populations and great wealth, these two parallel sins and crimes. Well, God warned Abraham, and despite Abraham's pleadings, Sodom and Gomorrah would be judged. Jude takes us to the night that Lot, Abraham's nephew, took in some angels unaware he was extending hospitality to them and trying to protect them from the townspeople. And he brings them into their home, right? But they want them. They don't trust Lot, and they don't know who these people are. And it appears that in this city, their immorality is so unrestrained that they try to take these men and force them, to even rape them. And God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. It is no more. In the first century time of, of Jesus and, and the early church, it was said that there was still smoke rising in the ruins. God judges sin. That's a truth that you can take to the bank. God will judge sin. When you think about that, you can't help but just turn the attention back to yourself, right? That's hard to do, I know. It's so much easier to talk about God judging Israel, God judging the angels, God judging these cities. But to think about God judging me, I don't know. That's, that's a hard thing, isn't it? But we need to learn from this lesson of past judgment. We need to beware sensuality. We need to beware and be alert of how prosperity breeds sensuality of all sorts. Yes, Sodom and Gomorrah, they, as, as cities and in their judgment, remind us of the sin of homosexuality. It is out of God's bounds and purposes for marriage and for sexual intimacy. It confuses God's plan and purpose. But it is not the only sin, and it is certainly not the only sin that the church of Jesus Christ should be known for. Did not Jesus say that if a man or woman looks at someone lustfully, they have committed adultery in their heart? Will the church be as passionate and known for that? We must be. We cannot fight the big sins. There are no big sins, ultimately. All of our sins are smudges and marks, marred image of God. We spit upon the beautiful, spotless glory of God with all of our sin. So will we be known? Will we take the lesson and will we be alert 
And will we be known for fighting against all sorts of sin, all sorts of sensuality? Will we also fight laziness and gluttony and drunkenness and other forms of addiction and pleasure that are outside of God's bounds? That's where we need to go with this. We need to submit to the Lordship of Jesus and say, teach me how to live. And believe me, I am preaching to my soul. No sane person would pick the letter of Jude to preach on, let alone this passage, if he didn't or she didn't believe that God's got a word. Why would we study this if we didn't want to submit to King Jesus? That's why we do this. So let's get back to Jude's main point. Why does he bring up these images of past judgment to alert us of present danger? There will be those in our midst or in other churches who will pervert the gospel and will bring great danger. We may, if we're not careful, fall prey to their false gospel. Apart from God's grace, we too could fall into their false gospel, fall into unbelief, or drift into unbelief, and experience God's judgment. We might even prove in the end that we are not saved, that we never believed in the first place. We had religious experience. The false teachers are dangerous, and we must know how to spot them. These past judgments alert us to some of the things, some of the ways they think, and some of the ways they teach, and the ways that they live, so that we can be alert and ready to contend for the faith now. Look at verse 8. Jude links these past judgments with the present danger of the false teachers. He says, Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Here we see the present danger of false teachers. You can see that they're like these past examples of judgment. Don't you see it? Uh, in defiling the flesh and in, not, in rejecting authority and blaspheming the glorious ones. Well, you might not see it initially. I'll explain it in just a minute. But think of it this way first. Like Israel, these false teachers were part of a congregation, part of the group of God's people, and yet they are full, rife of, with unbelief. Like the angels of heaven, they've rebelled against God's rightful authority, and in their case, not submitting to, in fact, denying the lordship of Jesus. Like Sodom and Gomorrah, they are controlled by their sensuality. Verse 10 describes them as dumb animals. These false teachers are like dumb animals who are just given to their instincts. Because they're devoid of the Holy Spirit. They do not have the renewing and the guiding power of the Holy Spirit in their life. Jude says that in verse 19. And they will be judged. So beware, church, beware 
those who will pervert the gospel. Beware their sensuality and beware their arrogance. That's the best way to sum up that threefold crime in verse 8. Here we see how they pervert God's grace into sensuality. It's a grace perhaps that forgives, but not a grace that transforms. And it gives a license, not to kill, but a license to sin. But the result is about the same. Let's look first here at the need to beware their sensuality. Uh, Verse 8 says that these false teachers were relying on their dreams. Somehow, they accepted a notion that they cooked up up here and they relied on that more than what God has already spoken. They were relying on God has told me rather than God has already said. They were relying on their dreams instead of the gospel, instead of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. They had another revelation. God was still speaking to them. But he wasn't because it contradicted everything that he had said before. And so they defiled the flesh, meaning they were ruled by their lusts, by their desires. They said it was okay to not be holy. It was okay to live in your sin. It's okay to mess up a little bit. Messed up theology always leads to messed up living. You got that, right? Messed up theology will always lead to messed up lives. Guaranteed. And it's true. You can see it in their case. Rather than fighting against sin, they were giving a license to sin. You're under grace. (laughs) You're forgiven. You're going to heaven. What's the big deal? Just pray and ask for God's forgiveness sometime. You'll be okay. We like that, don't we? We like to presume upon God's grace. It's part of our fallen nature to want that, to settle for that. And these false teachers pick up on that and promote it. It's not that unusual in the church today. By God's grace, just so you know, I didn't pick Jude because I saw and have been thinking and the elders said, we've got false teachers at Wyndham Baptist. Let's curb that now. No, okay? This is more preemptive for the future. And it's part of God's word that we need to know. But in the church in America, this is desperately needed. There are churches, there are whole denominations that will in fact ordain and promote men and women who are practicing homosexuals to preach the word of God. And not only to preach the word of God, but promote their lifestyle as God's truth. Huge denominations and lots of churches. But you know what? There are churches in more conservative denominations who have brothers and sisters living in open, unrepentant sin and rebellion to God, and they just say, it's okay. We'll we'll keep talking about it. And the sin is never dealt with. That's dangerous too. They are dreamers. 
promoting that God still speaks to me, to us. Let's put more trust in that than what He has already said. Beware those who will tempt you with a license to sin. Beware those who do not call you to fight, to contend for the faith, for a life of faith and holiness and trust in God's promises. Beware a false gospel. Also, beware their arrogance. Verse 8 says that they reject authority and they blaspheme the glorious ones. Rather than submitting to Jesus as Lord, they cling and affirm that Jesus is Savior. You cannot have Jesus as your Savior without having Him as Lord. He is both or He is none. They rejected Jesus' Lordship and they blasphemed the glorious ones. What on earth does that mean? Somehow, in some ways, they were speaking poorly, presumptuously, arrogantly, belittlingly against angels. I don't remember the last time I was talking bad about an angel. Do you? Yeah, I mean, this is something that maybe we're unfamiliar with, but I believe, actually, something that we're maybe more familiar with. When he says glorious ones here, um, there's a parallel passage in Second Peter chapter 2 that really links this to not just generic angels, not even to good angels, but to fallen angels, to demons, and perhaps even Satan himself. How could one speak slanderously and arrogantly about the devil? By being flippant. By not being vigilant. By thinking that it's not a concern. Who... Eh, there's no spiritual reality. It's 2012, people. There's no like wicked devil with pitchforks and red tails and horns. Only dumb, unscientific, unenlightened people believe in that junk. Well, perhaps Jude's false teachers were doing something similar to that. And in their slanderous blasphemous speech against demons and the devil, they gave way to further showing that they would not submit to Jesus and the reality all around them to fight for faith. Jude ends with an illustration that, that really we're going to end with. A very strange one. He says, you know what, church? Don't be like these false teachers. Beware them. Instead, be like Mike. Be like Mike. Be like Michael, the archangel. And you're thinking, well, yeah, of course. Be like Michael, the archangel. I was just thinking about that the other day. Probably not. But take a look. Verse 9, just read through it again. I'll explain it to you. Verse 9 tells a story, an illustration. Jude gives an illustration of a story that was very popular during his day of Michael, the archangel, wrestling with Satan who used to be top dog in heaven but he's not anymore because he rebelled against God and they're arguing about Moses' body and whether or not Moses deserved a rightful proper burial 
You see in the Old Testament, it says that Moses went up on the mountain and he died and God buried him. Perhaps so that Israel couldn't make a shrine out of his tomb. But we all know Moses wasn't that great of a guy, right? So Satan's up to his usual tricks of accusing and messing with God's people. And there's Michael, the archangel, God's representative. And what does he do? He doesn't do what the false teachers do. He doesn't say, "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh, Satan, right? He doesn't get in Satan's face and prove that he's top dog. Instead, he shows his glad, willing submission to God and his authority. He stays in his rightful place of trusting that God will take care of Satan. Jude's illustration doesn't mean that he's, he believes that this actually happened. It might have. We don't know. It was found in an ancient Jewish document, a writing called The Assumption of Moses. It's kind of like me using an illustration from Lord of the Rings. I don't actually believe in hobbits. But I use their illustrations a lot over the years, and I will. I love the story, and it's very applicable a lot of times. But it's an illustration. That's what Jude is doing here. But don't lose the force of the encouragement because it's just an illustration. We need to be like Michael so that we will not be like these false teachers and fall prey to their false gospel. We need to trust that God and His promises are better than our ideas and our thoughts and our thinking of what we deserve and what we need. Michael reminds us to trust God. And in doing that, we should be reminded of how Jude begins and how Jude ends with good news. The bad news is that God judges sinners. God judges sinners. He judges sin. Let's call sin, sin. Sin is rebellion. It is mutiny. It is rebellion against God. It is unbelief. And God will judge that because He always does what is good and right and perfect, doesn't He? We long for justice for everything in this world except when it comes to us. That's the bad news. God judges sin. But, wait, there's more. There is good news. God does not just judge sin. He saves us from sin. God the judge took our judgment on Himself. Who does that? Who would do that? What kind of king, what kind of sovereign, what kind of God would do that to take wrath and judgment that we deserve on Himself in the person of Jesus? A merciful, gracious God does that. That is who we serve. Hell is real. And hell is the right place where sinners like you and me belong. But it does not have to end that way. There is grace greater than our sin. And we find it only by faith in God's grace that comes to us through Jesus the Messiah. Jesus God's Rescuer. 
And we need this good news every day, don't we? We need to preach this good news to our souls every day. No days off allowed. The gospel, the good news, that God who is just is also our Savior, that God who, though we were enemies, has adopted us as sons and daughters all out of mercy and grace. And a God who not only forgives us of our sin, but actually transforms us. Grace that forgives and grace that transforms to make us more like Jesus. So that we can live and love like Jesus. Is not that good news? Amen. It is the Gospel. Believe it. Believe. Let's pray. Father, we, we praise You for the Gospel of Jesus. It is good news for sinners like us. Thank You that You have made us not just forgiven sinners, but transformed, being transformed sinners. And thank You that You are creating a community of faith here in Wyndham Baptist where the Gospel has humbled us enough where we can admit that we are all hypocrites at times more often than we want. But we thank You too that You are giving us Your heart to fight for faith, for Your promises. Oh, we pray that You would make us more like Jesus. Lord, I want to pray for those who do not believe in You. They are still in unbelief even this morning. And I pray that maybe even this morning You've taken them from unbelief to belief and faith in Jesus to be the one who died for their sins and rose again to new life for their forgiveness and transformed life through Your Spirit. Would You do that in our midst? Would You save those of us who have been caught in sin and have not been fighting for faith? Would You grant repentance and hope by Your grace? Cause us all to delight in Your Gospel and cause us all to live in glad, joyful submission to King Jesus. Use us to tell the Lakes region, to show the Lakes region this good news. I pray in the great name of Jesus.